So I came across this cartoon the other day that kind of relates to the theme. So there's a monk driving a car with his GPS and uh, the GPS is saying, it's a Zen GPS, it's a Zen monk. <laughs> so the first instructions, follow your bliss. The second instruction, the obstacle is the path. And the third, ob- optic, uh, the third uh, saying, if you aim for it, you're turning away from it. That's a very Zen teaching. If you go towards it, you get further away. So um, this evening I would like to, to uh, point to some uh, facets of the awakening process, you could say. So what I want to speak to is mostly about the misconceptions of awakening or awakeness, as I prefer to call it. And I was talking to a colleague of mine on the way over, and, and he said, well, what are you talking about tonight? I said, oh, misconceptions of awakening. He said, well, isn't everything a misconception about awakening? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sort of true, because um, whatever the mind can point to or label or fix, it's actually not it. And the Buddha's teaching was very much of that ilk. Whatever you can say it is, isn't, isn't it. Because the mind, by the nature of the mind, the way it points and, and fixes and labels and contrasts and makes a duality uh, automatically uh, undercuts the, the, uh, the very realization that it's pointing to. So I want to talk about some common misconceptions that I see and notice and um, some of my experiences uh, of that. And then a little more about the process of uh, awakeness versus thinking of it as a static event in time. And um, I, it was the reason I'm talking about this is I was uh, sitting in a cafe yesterday with a friend and we'd just been to a dance event and she w- I was sitting uh, in the cafe on the, on the, on in Sausalito on the, on the sidewalk and she was driving and uh, there was a car behind her honking really aggressively. And she looked really mellow. And she's like, oh. And she just drove, she was looking for a parking spot, and she just drove casually on and found a parking spot. And when she came by, we said, we, we were comforted how mellow she seemed to be with this very irate, loud honking driver behind her, like a New York cabbie. And she said, yeah, that's, those kind of things don't bother me anymore. And I said, oh, tell me more about that. And she said, yeah, I was, you know, it's, it, 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 I noticed something shifted in my practice about a year ago where things just don't seem to grab or grip in the same way. And I said, well, tell me more. I, I, this, is, this is great material for Dharma talk. <laughs> <laughs> and she uh, said, yeah, I was, my, my father was passing about a year ago and she got the call, the dreaded call from her brother and who said, your father's having a heart attack, has had a heart attack and he's dying and... And she also noticed a similar lack of uh, grip and a lack of fear. And then she said, but it's interesting because I, li- I have some housemates and um, one day they, they, I came back and all, and all the lights were off around the house and they were all missing. And um, she thought that they must have gone out and the, her housemate was replacing them. And she asked the housemate, what's going on? She said, oh yeah, they were in the closet over there. And she said, what do you mean they're in the closet? They're supposed to be in the, in the lampshade so you can see when you come into the house. Like, what's up with that? And she said, oh, they were bothering me. I just took them down. I just got rid of them. And, and she got really mad and really frustrated. And, and, sh- and, and then she had, a whole s- she had a lot of stories around, well, I shouldn't be, you know, I'm, I've been so calm and equanimous, and now I should be a calm and equanimous all the time, right? Isn't that how it's supposed to look? You know, it's how it reads in the text, and then, you know, it's you have a certain level of awakening, and then there's a certain unruffledness about you. And, and I said, well, that's not my experience. That's not what I see happening to people around me. And so we talked about how, th- how her mind, as all our minds do, creates, create traps. They create fixed ideas of how it should be, how it should look 
how we should be from thus from this moment on because I've had this experience, this aha moment, this awakening. Then we think, oh, this is how it's going to look, just like these folks behind us, you know, sitting there in the 101, Mm -hmm. stuck in traffic. Mm -hmm. And there's no room for our humanness, which might be frustrated, might be angry, might be fearful, might be who knows what, anxious, playful, silly. So I want us to explore this idea of the notions or the concepts we create about our spiritual life and our spiritual practice and how we should be and how we should act and how we think we should look. Does anybody here not have an idea of how it should be and how it should look? Just yeah, we all have our idea. Oh, one person, okay, two, okay. So the Buddha said once, he said, that which we can conceive is ever other than is so. That which we conceive, that which we think about, is ever other than is so. The what, what the mind takes to be reality, we need to be uh, hold loosely and question it. You know, we have a lot of wars happening, religious wars and ideological wars happening because people hold on to something that the mind conceives and said, this is true, this is reality, this is how it is, this is God, this is my land, this is whatever position we're taking. So there's a lovely piece in the text where sometime after the Buddha had his profound uh, uh, awakening, awakenings, they're never singular. And he's walking down the road, many of you heard this story, and he's, you can imagine, he, he was a handsome prince, he was, he, he was pretty buff because he worked out, and uh, you know, he was, he was a swordsman and a great horseman, and you know, so he was well-developed and beautiful and refined, and, and then he'd been meditating for six years. And, and and had a series of awakenings that you imagine when, you, when people have had awakenings, there's a certain radiance and, and vitality and beauty and glow in the eyes. So he's walking down the road and um, this person comes up and says, wow, you know, who are you? Are you a god? He says, no. I said, well, are you a celestial spirit being? No. Were you, well, you a man? No. Well, what are you? Like, it's kind of weird. Well, I'm awake. He says, I am awake. And the, and the person went, I don't know what that means. And then walked off. <laughs> and probably further confirmed the Buddha's idea that when he had some doubts after his awakening, he said, I don't know if I, don't know if I can communicate this realization. It's, it's so subtle and so hard to see, and people seem so caught up in themselves. I don't know if this will be translatable to people's experience. But what I love about that, that, that little story is him pointing to the central fact of his experience, which is awakeness. He's awake. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm just awake. Whatever that means, whatever that meant to him in that moment. The Buddha means to be awake, the awake one. Right? So we all have Buddha nature. We all have the capacity to be awake. Hopefully that will last at least till 9.15 tonight. <laughs> so you know, stay awake for the talk. Um... But we all have this capacity to be aware, to be present, to know, to discern, to know what's true. Or at least we have moments. We have a lot of things getting in the way of that clarity too, like views, like ideas, like concepts. So in, because every spiritual tradition, every meditative tradition has its own ideas of what awakening, awakening is, or awakeness is. And in Buddhism, there are many, many different schools. And each school has a particular perspective or an idea of what that means to be awake. Right? So if you go to different teaching, you go to a Zen teaching, you go to a Tibetan teaching, you go to a Pure Land school, there's many different schools. And they'll, they'll give you different ideas about what it means to be awake. And sometimes they can f- seem contradictory. So in, the, in this tradition, uh, in the lineage of the elders, which is, Spirit Rock is part of that tradition, uh, the earlier form of Buddhism, earlier wave of Buddhism, um, 
awakening is defined in certain clear ways around the absence of things, the absence of a mind that no longer sticks, that no longer holds on, that no longer rejects, that no longer is aversive to what's here. And it's an awareness that sees clearly, that's not caught up in self-referencing and self-aggrandizement and self-delusion. Pretty rare, wouldn't you say? So in these different levels of awakening, of, of, of that process. And there's, there's understandings along the way, understanding of the, the ephemeral nature of the self that we so cherish and uh, wrap our lives around, which I've spoken to in different classes where we have a radical disidentification from the stories of the mind and our identity. And sometimes radical experiences, either in our practice or in life, can wake us up to see that we're not just this small little self running around on a hamster wheel, that there's there's something much more vast and possible. I remember hearing a story of a teacher when I was in India, in southern India, and he had been interred, interned, interred, as a prisoner of war um, in Japan in the 40s. And his job at the, uh, the prison was to um, be lowered into the cesspit and, and have to empty it with a bucket up to his neck, which you can imagine is a pretty um, harrowing experience. It was so it was so traumatizing that he began to see that it, 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 it forced or created some disidentification from the sense of self and actually uh, was able to find a deep s- state of freedom in the midst of the cesspit. Now I'm not suggesting you do that as a practice. It could be its own tradition. We have the cesspit tradition. <laughs> we lower you into some you know pit of snakes or whatever it is you're chosen you know, thing is, no, but, th- but there are, you know, but like near-death experiences. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who had a, a near-death experience on a bike, and um, just the radical shift of consciousness that happens when, we, when, our, when our reality is altered, when we look as if from the other side, and, we, and, when, and I hear this so often when people come back from those experiences, this experience is considered gravy. It's all gravy. It's all a bonus. And so there's a certain liberation in that because they, there was a, such a, uh, an expectation of dying. There's the way of understanding the, the Buddha's central teaching of the Four Noble Truths to understand clarity around what causes suffering, to know radically what causes suffering and what brings about freedom. To know that in our bones so we don't keep reenacting those things. What would it be in our lives to live in a way that we didn't reenact the suffering that we know, the things that we do that cause us pain? We all know mostly what we need to know. We just need to apply the wisdom that we know. (laughs) Right? Because we, you know, we have, we, we're smart people. We, we, have enough, we have enough information and data. We just keep reenacting because of the strength of certain habits. So part of the awakening process is the, is the, the erosion of the grip of those habits, which takes time, takes practice, takes clarity, takes... Who knows what? It takes grace sometimes. And then out of these understandings, these clarities, comes more wakeful action, where our life is, uh, is more kind, more caring, more, less self-referential. More connected. Right? But I'm aware as I'm talking, I'm planting seeds of concepts about what this experience can be like. 
And therefore the mind goes, oh, well, I'm feeling disconnected. That's nothing to do with me. Or I'm feeling miserable. That's got nothing to do with me. Or I shouldn't be disconnected. I shouldn't be feeling a moment of desire because isn't awakening supposed to be desirelessness? This is a, a piece um, from Stan Groff, who's talking about um, ecstatic experiences, uh, and he's characterizing it as tantric ecstasy. But you could, this is really an analogy for um, how we uh, th- how we see, but also how we can experience these profound moments. He says tantric ecstasy is being characterized by extreme peace, tranquility, serenity, and radiant joy. The individual involved experiences a blissful, tension-free state, a loss of ego boundaries, an absolute sense of oneness with nature, with the cosmic order and with God, a deep intuitive understanding of existence, and a flood of various specific insights of cosmic relevance that are characteristic of this condition. Sounds pretty good to me. I'm ordering that. And we think, oh, that's it, right? Or maybe you've tasted that, maybe you know that. That's not, that's not altogether an unfamiliar uh, experience for people. And, but we think that, oh, well, we, we think it should last. We think it should always be like that. We think, you know, we get in line and then it's just plain sailing. We, we go, we hang up our hat in the, in the in spiritually enlightened retirement home and we cruise all the way to nirvana. So in the Mahayana tradition, which is later development, the awakening process is more characterized by the profound compassion to relieve the suffering of others. That that's the movement of the heart expressed through love and care. Less centrifugal force around ourselves and more oriented towards others. Other schools, later schools, point to the centrality of knowing one's true nature, one's Buddha nature, as awakeness, as awareness itself. Different lenses, different facets. The teacher Hamid, who I've studied with for many years, who founded the Diamond Approach work, uh, when asked this question about enlightenment, he says, "There's there's no end goal, there's no end game. There's just more inquiry into the truth. There's just the next experience. No matter how amazing and wonderful that enlightenment experience is or was, then you've got the laundry to do. You know, you've got to drive the kids to school. You've got to buy the groceries. You've got to feed and take care of the body. You've got to pay your taxes or file your extension (laughs) or as I do or whatever you like to do. I remember seeing a movie, there was a movie uh, about cults. I'm sure some of you would have seen this movie. I think um, Kate Winslet or somebody like that was in it. Anybody see this movie? Cult Finding or something? And anyhow, they they had this depiction of of one of these cosmic enlightened moments, like what Stan Groff was pointing to, and it was all colors and light and rainbow bodies and beautiful things. It was the Hollywood version of that experience. It looked really good. <laughs> and again, I'm not saying they don't happen, they happen. They're, they're quite accessible in certain ways. But then we make, we, make an, we, make a, we make a view about it, we make a religion about it. What's interesting about the process that's not so talked about, Jack has some beautiful pieces in in his book, uh, After the Ecstasy of the Laundry, which in a way kind of sums it up, After the Ecstasy of the Laundry. Wonderful book if you haven't read it. It's a book about many people's awakening experiences, what happened, the, 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 uh, both the, the liberating qualities of that, the different doorways through the heart, through suffering, through transcendence, and then what happens afterwards in your relationship? 
in your job, in your dealing with money, in going back to your old life where you're putting on old clothes that don't quite fit in the same way because you've had a profound opening and seeing into the nature of things. There's a wonderful line in <coughs> the Gnostic Gospels. This is a Gospel of St. Thomas. And Jesus is, says, Those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. Those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. When they find, they will be disturbed. When they find, they will be disturbed. That is a very radical understanding. When we seek and when we find what it is that we're looking for, it's actually quite disturbing because it actually pulls the rug from underneath us, from what we thought was true, from who we thought we were, from what we thought life was about. And it's very unsettling. And there's many stories of people who've had profound processes of transformation and it's taken many, many years to integrate. And they didn't just sit in that cosmic light love land that Stan was pointing to. So there was a, a, a woman, I forget her name, she, was, she used to teach here in Marin and we called her Bus Stop Guru. That wasn't her name, but she, 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 got an, she, she had a, an awakening moment getting onto a bus. So she's just standing for the bus, waiting for the bus, bus comes, and between standing on the pavement and getting onto the bus, she saw through the veil and radically transformed her life. And it took her about 10 years to integrate that experience through therapy and th thought she was mad because nobody really understood her. And, um, and it can be like that. I remember when I was with my teacher in India and I was having some profound experiences and I was writing to my friends back home from my old Buddhist group and they thought I'd lost it. They thought I'd taken who knows what in India and just completely gone off the wall. And, but my experience was very different. My, my experience was very clear and I knew, what was, I knew what I was seeing, I knew what was true. But it didn't make sense to a certain point of view. Just like when we sometimes go back to our families and we've gone through a big transformation, but our families and people who know us who for 20, 30 years will relate to us as, oh, there's, there's Mark, we know who Mark is. <laughs> right? And it can be very disconcerting because we don't actually feel that person at all, was with something quite different. Other teachers, Eckhart Tolle, Byron Katie, all talk about uh, experiences of, of, of having profound transformation and then the challenge of integrating that, taking years, as many of you know. So the Gnostic Gospel piece goes on, to just to not leave you in the disturbed piece too long. Those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. When they find, they will be disturbed. And when they are, they are disturbed, they will marvel. They will marvel when they are disturbed. When things have been shaken up radically, they will marvel at what's seen. Right? Because we, it, it, we marvel at the, uh, at the way things are, not how the, wor the mind thinks they are. So again, I remember being with uh, this teacher, Punjaji, in India, and um, people would have, um, it, was, it was like a awakening factory. People would come and they'd have spontaneous realizations just by the power of his presence and the dialogue. And, um, and the, the result of that, of that seeing through was, was laughter. It was just great delight to, because it's sort of like a cosmic joke. The, 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 the spiritual path, in a way, can, can, from that perspective, feel like a cosmic joke. We're, we're going along in a certain way, trying to get somewhere, trying to get some experience, trying to have something, and then we realize, oh, it's already here. It always, it always was here. It never left us. It, never, it can't leave us because it's the nature of how things are. So what's the big, why have we been working so hard for the last 50 years? <laughs> There's a certain irony in it, and it can be a very amusing from a certain perspective. And very infuriating when you when you when you when you can't see that. So I get a lot of my spiritual teachings from the yogi tea bags. You know they have the, they have the little <laughs> Dharma quote thing on the, on the 
And my favorite one of the, of the moment, um, it's great, for, it's just like you, it's a morning darshan with the tea bag. <laughs> and um, this particular statement said, uh, when you attune to the unknown, the known is always peaceful. When you attune to the unknown, the known is always peaceful. If that does not make sense, that's okay. Because to the mind, it will not make sense. When you attune to the unknown, when you attune to the mystery, when you attune to silence, when you attune to that which is not graspable, findable, fixable, knowable, doable, something other than the ordinary, the mundane, you could say, then the ordinary becomes peaceful. Our experience becomes peaceful. One of the fruits that arise at times out of the awakening process. I say at times because we can read that tea back and go, oh, I should always be peaceful. If I, if I really knew what the unknown was, which I may or may not do, then I should always be peaceful. But in that moment we're tuning to the peaceful, that may actually be true. But then what happens is we attune to the idea of the unknown, not the actual unknown. We, we tune to the idea of, of, of a past experience, a past knowing. Has anybody here tried to recapture a past experience, like a peak experience, a peak insight, a peak understanding? Right? We all have these moments, whether it's through tragedy, through loss, through being in a different environment, through profound spiritual practice, through, uh, through lovemaking. It can be, who knows where these things are? Getting on a bus, you know? Getting your morning tea. And we have these aha moments we have, and they could be profoundly life-changing. And we spend a lot of our time and effort trying to get back there because it was so radical and so profound and so moving. But of course, any movement to go back there is, as they say in Zen, is stepping away, is, is taking you further away. If you look outside of yourself, it gets further. And f- if you look outside, as the poet Han Chan wrote, if you look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away. So looking outside of yourself is also looking to the past. The past is outside of what's just here. But the mind only knows the past. The mind references everything through the past, through association, through memory. Right? But, but these profound moments of insight and clarity, they don't happen in the past. They don't happen through an ideas. They happen through the vividness of this, this mystery, this moment, this whatever this is. So the poet Ikkyu, a wonderful Japanese poet who had a very interesting life. Uh, I think this was probably written when he was um, still uh, an abbot of uh, major Zendo in Japan. And what is mind and how how is it recognized? What is mind and how is it recognized? How would you recognize your own mind? If I clearly draw it in ink, The sound of breezes drifting through the pines is all that is seen. If I clearly draw the mind in ink, the sound of breeze drifting through the pines is all that is seen. Doesn't give you a lot of clues, does it? (laughs) I want it to be this. (laughs) Right here, just tell me how it is. Not so easy. why so many spiritual teachings are paradoxical. They don't seem to make sense. All these Zen koans and these Zen stories. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Well, one hand clapping doesn't make a sound. So what's, what's the deal there? But, it, but, it, but they force the mind to, to, to break out outside of itself, as it were. So my experience of different... Um, 
teachers who seem to uh, um, show uh, remarkable levels of clarity and understanding and wakefulness didn't fit my idea of how they should be. You know, they, they didn't look like that or like that. Sometimes when they were sitting quietly, but it's not mostly what they did. So when this teacher Punjaji was very alive and very vivacious and playful and a trickster and laughed most of the time and the whole thing was just a big joke. Um, the story a friend of mine told me who went to see Nisargadatta Maharaj who, who wrote I Am That, which is one of the most profound texts written in the last century. And um, he was this, he, 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 his job was selling cigarettes. He was a beady, beady waller uh, in the streets of Bombay. Not something you ascribe to an enlightened you know, person, but that's what he did. And uh, when my friend went to see him, he literally got up and threw him out the room. And my friend was a little startled because he was hoping to get some you know, great teachings. And then he went back the next day and the same thing happened. He threw him out the room. Not what you expect a spiritual awakened teacher to do. So you don't know. But he loved to sh- shake up the idea of how it should be. I don't think he was doing it consciously. I remember the story of when the Dalai Lama was visiting some monastery somewhere. I think it was um, maybe even the uh, Trappist Forest Monastery that um, some famous person lived. Um, so my memory's going. Anyhow, he was visiting a monastery, and they were famous for their beer, as, monas- as, as these Christian monasteries for making beer and, and cheese and jam. And so they, they, they took His Holiness through this tour, and they gave him all these different cheeses, kinds of cheeses to try. And all he wanted was the jam. And he never got any jam. <laughs> and he was really frustrated the whole time going through the tour that he wanted the jam. All he got was cheese. <laughs> I remember when I, I came back from India and I, I, was, I was with my ex-partner and we would, we would go to India every year and study with different teachers and come to retreats in, in America and England and, and we'd stop off en route to my, uh, my parents in England and um, they were always aghast when we, when we tried to cook together. We couldn't cook for more than five minutes without having a big to-do in the kitchen. We just had very different cooking styles and ideas about how it should be done. And so we would just go at it in the kitchen. And my parents would come, come into the kitchen going, you guys have been meditating for the last six months and you can't even <laughs> cook potatoes together without like, you know, going at it. Like, what's up with that? <laughs> so my ex would try and give her explanation that it's not about, it's how we're relating to it. And they didn't, they never quite got it. <laughs> Did, it didn't cut the mustard for this. <laughs> So I'm going to read a poem. Um, I did give a talk recently here about the poetry of realization. I don't think I read this poem. So one of the things I've noticed in my own experience is um, is as we as we unpeel, as we as we get clearer on this journey, as we become less defended, uh, there's a certain level of attunement arise, a certain level of sensitivity, which um, uh, there's a line I'm remembering uh, that goes, ready for sparks of awakening from, I can't remember the next line, but there's a certain sensitivity that arises where we can become much more easily touched and so everything becomes a teacher, everything becomes a dharma doorway. So for me, as many of you know, that's my doorway is in nature. That's where I, I feel that, that, that support, that clarity, that, that uh, sensitivity uh, as, a, uh, as, a, the natural, as the natural world is a support for the awakening process. So this is a poem I wrote last year called The Trees with the Lights in It. 
and it's about a poem. It's about a story from um, <coughs> uh, Annie Dillard, who wrote a story about this young girl who was blinded and then had an operation and she could see and she went out into the forest and she talked about the trees that have lights in them. She was so sort of awakened with sight. So um, the poem goes like this. I didn't even know what I was looking for as I sat on the lawn watching Autumn drape her scarlet hair over the woods. It was the evergreen, the sugar pine, that was breathing a fire into the cold air that leapt off the page of melancholy. And I knew then the burning bush, when God touches her hand, the ordinary catches a light. And we don't know who it is that is on fire. We are both consumed in a communion of rapture. We step off the shelf of time and enter a vision from which the world never appears the same. Now when the vision fades, I still pass by that tree, knowing of our sacred pact. We exchange a knowing nod, and I wait, turning my senses into kindling, to be ignited into song or into light. So I share that poem partly just as, a, as, as a, an expression of this process, but also... Um, because that experience fades, just like everything else fades. Everything comes and goes, no matter how profound and luminous, it fades. But we can also be, uh, we can also be sensitive to a residue or a trace of that experience. So, I think the most important point for me around this issue is understanding the, the process of awakening, that awakening is a process, not a fixed event in time. There is a school, there is a whole debate in Buddhism um, that was, that was uh, characterized by this, this uh, Chinese saying, uh, sudden realization, gradual cultivation. Sudden realization meaning we have these aha moments, we have these sudden insights. But it may take us a lifetime to integrate it. That's the, that's the gradual cultivation. And different schools emphasize one or the other. Like in Zen, they emphasize more the sudden realization, satori, the moment of satori, moment of awakening. Other schools, I'd say the Theravadan school, this lineage is more the school of cultivation. We cultivate mindfulness and awareness and kindness and clarity and calm and insight and wise understanding, right? And over time, things peel off. Things peel off, we unburden, we enlighten slowly. So, the, my question for you is, if you're not how you think you should be, or where you think you should, how you think you should be, or where you think you should be, then you have to be and meet where you are, right? Because the mind has all kinds of ideas about how we should be, how our meditation should be, where, you know, I should be further, this is a great line, I should be further along than I am. I should be more awake than I am. I should be more kind than I am. I should be, right? which of course is impossible, because you can't be anywhere other than where you are. Right, so it's a complete misnomer, but we can we kind of believe that. Oh, I should be more something, more spiritual, more meditative, more mindful, more something, and we stick ourselves in a box. But really, all we have is this moment, and how we are with this moment. So for me, the the process of awakening really only applies to just this moment, because what else? What are the criteria? What what, what are the measuring stick do we have? Who cares if you had some cosmic thing and some enlightened thing here and da, da, da. what's happening right now? How are you when you're stuck on the Golden Gate Bridge in traffic trying to get across the non-existent Doyle Bridge <laughs> construction traffic this weekend or getting to, getting to the 49ers or whatever was going on the Giants, I think, had their opening day today on Saturday. 
how are you in this moment when you're tired and you just want this talk to end and go home and go to bed? Yeah. How are you when you're irritated by somebody at work that you know you have to be working with for the next uh, eternity? <laughs> right? I mean, that's, you know, it's all about where are the rubber meets the road. And, and, and reality in life is so amazing at throwing things at us that challenge every notion we have about ourselves and who we think we are and what we think we know. And, right? I was just talking, having a conversation about a friend of mine who's been looking after his parents, his, his quite sick parents for the last 10 years. You know, it's like it's been a really brutal, challenging process of showing up day after day, dealing with really difficult circumstances, as many of you know. Robert Bly has a poem that speaks to, and really what I'm pointing to is, um, is, is how we show up for our humanness. Because really that's all we have. And sometimes our spiritual practice is, a, is an attempt at transcending our humanness, which never really works because we have a body and we have to come back into our body. Otherwise, it gets really upset with us and we get sick or we get hungry or we need to use the bathroom or something. So Robert Bly, right in this poem called People Like Us, he says, there are people like us all over the world there are confused people who can't remember the name of their dog when they wake up, and people who love God but can't remember where he was when they went to sleep. It's all right. The world cleanses itself this way. A wrong, number, a, a, a wrong number occurs to you in the middle of the night. You dial it. It rings just in time to save the house. And the second story man gets the wrong address where the insomniac lives, and he's lonely, and they talk. And the thief goes back to college. Even in graduate school, you can wander into the wrong classroom and hear great poems lovingly spoken by the wrong professor. And you find yourself, and greatness has a defender. And even in death, it's okay. So, showing up for the chaos and the confusion and mess. Anybody have a life that's really like just clear and clean and smooth and just really together and uncomplicated and simple and you just have plenty of time to read all the emails and file them neatly into your mailboxes and respond lovingly to all those. Right? No, it's not, life's not like that. You know? It's not supposed to be like that except our idea that we should be living in a certain way. I meditate, I should be all of Zen now. Good luck. And I love the, 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 the metaphor that they use in Zen of the ox herding pictures. They, they use a metaphor of, um, the, the metaphor of, of uh, the, for the spiritual path of looking for an ox, searching in the forest, eventually finding the ox and then having to tame the ox, coming to be a one with the ox, and then eventually the, 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 the seeker and the ox don't live in some enlightened forest in the cave somewhere. No, they come back into the marketplace. He brings the ox back down into the marketplace. So we come back into our lives. Whatever experience we have, however beautiful our meditation was or our retreat was or our yoga practice was or whatever it is that we do, it's just the next thing which is very humbling. This is from the poet Ryokan. The first day of autumn, returning from my arms round, I set down my bowl by the temple to go play with the children. Last year a foolish monk, this year no change. <laughs> so it's like that. <laughs> or it's very minimal change. Right? But you can hear in the poem there's something very beautiful. There's a, there's a sort of acceptance, there's a serenity, there's a kindness, 
as an ordinariness, as a simplicity. This is from the poet Ikkyu I mentioned before, who um, was a was a renowned abbot and a great teacher and scholar and and um, someone's loving the talk over here. Um, <laughs> And he got tired of the, the bureaucracy and, and uh, the religious establishment. And so he, he led, led the life of a wanderer and a poet. And, um, and he writes, Follow the rule of celibacy blindly, and you are more than an ass. Break it, and you are only human. It is easy to enter the world of the Buddha, but difficult to enter the world of the devil. Easy to enter the world of the Buddha, but difficult to enter the world of the devil, of the shadow. And he goes on to write, The narrow path of asceticism is not for me. My mind runs in the opposite direction. It is easy to be glib about Zen. I'll just keep my mouth shut and rely on love play all day long. So he took a very different path. He shocked so many of his contemporaries from being this. He was renowned for having... Uh, love affairs and um, lived quite a different life than the ascetic, renunciate, Zen priest, abbot, enlightened teacher supposed to live. And as so many of these teachings, uh, this is the last, my last point, which is so many of these, these teachings. Um, come down to, as we meet our humanness, what's so important about that process is how we engage the heart, how we meet whatever experience or difficulty or challenge or or global suffering or an ecological mess with some compassion. Another proof of the pudding of our practice is how we turn towards ourselves and each other with a kind heart. It's probably the most unifying of experiences across spiritual traditions, is this movement to connection, to empathy, to compassion, to metabolizing the suffering, the challenge of our experience. And in that transformation, there's a, there's a softening there's a, there's a warmth, there's a tenderness, there's an affection. Not all the time, because we're human. We go up and down, we get tired and grumpy, we bark. Because why not? Because we're human. But there's an overall tendency, a leaning toward a direction. So to notice that for yourself, if you can look back. The Dalai Lama says, you know, look back every 10 or 20 years. You know, give yourself some wide piece of time. Not like, God, I meditate and I haven't noticed any result yet. This is, this is really a waste of time. No, we give ourselves, you know, it's slow. Spiritual change happens slowly. The integration happens slowly. The how it manifests in our life happens slowly, for the most part. So I um, heard this story, or I, I remembered this story um, of Billy Mills. People familiar with the story of Billy Mills? No, he was um, an Olympian in the 60s. He was the first Native American Olympian. And I think in 1967 won a silver medal. Uh, I forget what discipline, I think swimming. And because of racial segregation and because of just the general blindness and ignorance around racial issues and racism, he was, there was no official photograph allowed to be taken of him and no write-up in any newspaper, even though he'd given his life to becoming a world-class athlete. And so um, uh, he obviously went through tremendous uh, difficulty and and grief around that experience. And later wrote about his experience, and uh, and this is a really beautiful example of how we metabolize, especially some of the most deeply painful experiences, and they become the fodder for, for our own awakening. I asked for fame, Billy Mills writes, so others would know me. I was given obscurity that I might know myself. 
I asked for a person to love that I might never be alone. I was given the life of a hermit that I might learn to accept myself. I asked for power that I might achieve. I was given a weakness that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might lead a long life. I was given infirmity that I might appreciate each minute. I asked Mother Earth for th- I asked Mother Earth for strength that I might have my way. I was given weakness that I might need I might feel the need for her. I asked to live happily that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might live happily. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. I received nothing I asked for, yet all my wishes came true. So let's just sit for a moment. Let all the words go. And just turning towards your experience with a kind awareness, noticing what's here, and importantly, knowing how you are in relationship to what's here. This is the only life we have, the only body we have, the only breath we have. Pay attention as if your whole life depends on it, which it does. So thank you for your attention. We're out of time for questions. One of these days I will shorten my talk so we can get questions in. Um, as for now. Have a lovely week and thank you for all the volunteers for doing such a great job helping us run this place. If you can stack your